Kevin, how did the coat work out? Kevin, how did you like your coat? Those are words that my friend Kevin heard his parents ask him the day after he got his Christmas present. Now, his Christmas present was a very expensive coat that he wanted. He was 26 years old. He just was in the Navy and living in Virginia, just moved away from Texas. So things were a little bit colder during the wintertime. And he needed this coat, but he couldn't afford it. So his parents got him this amazing, expensive coat that he'd been wanting all year long. So then, like any 26-year-old, right, he, he goes out on the town right after Christmas, stays out really late, and he, he leaves the bar, and he goes home. The next morning, his parents ask him, Kevin, how did the coat work out? And he tried to avoid the situation. And he says, finally, they're like, well, where, where's your coat? And he says, I don't have it anymore. And they're like, oh, Kevin, what did you do? Where did you go? What bar did you leave it at? And he says, actually, I, I, I gave it away. There was a homeless man on my way to my car, and I gave him my coat. And he thought he would be okay, but his parents got very upset. They said, Kevin, we have thousands of coats or hundreds or whatever amount of coats we have. We can give them all those. Why did you give them the one we gave you? We spent a lot of money on that coat. And Kevin told his dad, well, dad, that was the only coat I was wearing at the time. His dad told that story at Kevin's funeral about a year ago. And that stuck with me. You always friends like that, willing just to give a coat off their back for a stranger. You know, when I was traveling with the migrant caravan, it was about a year and a half ago, November of 2018, and I flew down uh, to learn more about the immigration struggle that was not only happening on our border, but we heard about the caravans coming through Mexico. We were seeing migrants come through our San Antonio bus station, and I wanted to learn a little bit more about it. So I jumped on Interjet plane from San Antonio and landed in Mexico City to try to learn a little bit about what was going on. And I didn't really know what I was doing. I had no idea what I was doing, but that's where God comes in. Because I am this guy who does not speak Spanish. I grew up in the Woodlands, Texas, on a golf course. The Woodlands is like the widest place in town, right? right maybe not the, but it was, you know, that's where I grew up. And all of a sudden, I'm in Mexico City, and I'm with a friend of mine who I met in San Antonio, who's now a professor in, in Mexico City. And she uh, brought me to a soccer stadium where the migrants had just arrived. 6,000 migrants. This is not the only caravan that came through uh, Mexico at this time. There was actually one before, maybe a month before, uh, that was a, mainly a caravan of trans people fleeing asylum, right? But this, this caravan is one that made the news, the one you saw mainly on the news, and they're in Mexico City. And we started asking stories and, and hearing their stories about why they were fleeing. And I met some amazing people, some of the most sincere and kind and loyal people I've ever met. I met Angie, a 21-year-old mother traveling to meet up with her son and her aunt. I met Demarius, a 15-year-old trying to reconnect with her mother-in-law in Laredo, who traveled alone before finding her friends. I met Caesar, a father who escaped violent gangs and is trying to find a safe place for his wife. 
and child. I also met a man named Emerson, a man carrying a blue umbrella. I saw him at the camp. He just was carrying a blue umbrella, like a, a, a total umbrella. But the weird thing was it was 10 p.m. and not raining. And I said, you got to tell me what's going on with the umbrella. And he said, this is my brother's umbrella. I was traveling with him from Honduras. About in southern Mexico, he passed away. And this is the only thing I have of his, and I'm taking it all away to fulfill our dream. Stories like that I heard. People fleeing intense violence, corruption, gang violence. And I learned six things from them on my journey. The first thing I learned is they welcomed me, a stranger, with open arms. You know, about the second day, the first day I, I met Emerson and met some people, but people kept moving on. We kept leaving. You know, when I first arrived at 9 p.m., I asked them what time will they be taking off uh, to continue their journey. I was thinking they were going to say like in 72 hours or in three days after we rest. They said, no, at four in the morning. I meant like, I was like, you like in like five hours? You just got here. And they said, yeah, we're going to go. And so at four in the morning, everybody got up, packed their tents, 6,000 people went on to the metro station, got, took the subway all the way as north as they could in Mexico City, and they started walking. Then on the second day, after some really intense travel and walking and seeing family and stroller after stroller after stroller of family seeking a new life, uh, we got caught at a tollway station. At this tollway station, there wasn't a lot of activity. You couldn't hitchhike on the trucks that were normally coming through, and people were waiting and having the decision, do I just continue walking north, three hours maybe north of Mexico City now? It's getting hot. People were lacking water and food. And I was just kind of standing there with them and thousands of them at this toll station and wondering, what are we going to do? And at that moment, an 18-wheeler pulled up. It was about a double-length 18-wheeler carrying steel on its flatbed, and it was about as high up as an 18-wheeler would normally be, and it was just bars and bars and bars of these, of these still steel. And I thought, no one is going to get on this 18-wheeler. But all of a sudden, hundreds of people started crawling on board because they knew it was continuing on north. And so I had a split-second decision. Do I do this, or do I just stay and maybe just make it back to Mexico City and, and call it a day? But I jumped on last minute when it was really crowded, and we traveled for a few hours on top of this steel uh, where this trucker was just going on his route and said he could take us as far as he was going. And then we stopped, and he said, uh, this is actually a, a city that has a shelter for those who need to get off. Some of them had children, babies with them. They got off because they needed to rest. But the trucker says, well, I'm going to continue on. Uh, and so everybody at this truck stayed. And I already gotten off thinking you know, we're going to go to this next shelter. That's what we did the day before. I thought it was just kind of the same old situation. And then all of a sudden, my friends who were there uh, told me, no, this truck is continuing on. You should get back on. Come with us. So I got back on, but now the truck is a lot more crowded. And I had a really uncomfortable seat on this. It was the very edge of the, of the steel. Like if I just leaned down, there was the moving cement about, what, 12 feet below. And so I'm hanging on, I have a backpack, and I'm trying to, you know, just like, 
you know, hold on to one of those like straps that you see on trucks. And I was just like, oh, my mom's going to kill me. Like, this is not going to go well. And then all of a sudden, uh, I saw a little pair of brown shoes just cross my stomach, which is a very odd way to meet somebody, by the way. Like, if I, if I, if I was like, come to you, like, before the service started and just did that to you, like, you'd be highly concerned. Like, you'd call the authorities and be like, this is weird. Uh, but it wasn't. It wasn't weird at this moment. So I just kind of turned around, which you don't have to turn on very far, because if you're that close to somebody, their head is like right here. So I just kind of looked, and this guy named Nelson that I met, he just said, he just kind of like smiled and laughed and said, I got you. And I was like, okay. And we started linking arms and to the next people next to us, and we became this human pretzel, right, to survive this uh, road trip. And the next 24 hours, we took tons of different modes of transportation to get safely to the next city. And we bonded with each other. They welcomed me as one of their own. The second thing I wanted, the second thing I learned is this group wanted to be seen and known. They wanted to be heard, right? Most people who seek uh, sometimes asylum, you would assume, would not want to be seen and known. They'd rather go quietly, unannounced. But this caravan announced exactly where they were, why they were migrating, and where they were going. That sense of honesty, that openness, is something that taught me something very strong about who we are as a people. The third thing I learned, and this is one of the most important things, is they wanted just the essentials. A lot of the times, we misinterpret why people are migrating. Words like scarcity and resources become start of our vocabulary when we're speaking about against migrants. Not only the, the evil things we say about them, but to defend our way of life, we say, oh, scarcity, there's only so much we can do. It's also the same argument I hear about my homeless friends in San Antonio. The same words are used to not serve our neighbor because we can only do so much. And so you hear the word and you hear the phrase oftentimes to say, we're seeking a better life. It's a simple phrase, one we can kind of understand, but as people of privilege and a lot of people around us, when we hear that, we get offended. We get nervous. What do they mean, better life? Do they want my job? Do they want my house? Do they want the things I own? But really what they're saying is they want a safe life. They want a life of freedom where they can raise their family in peace without corruption, without gangs, without violence. The girl that wrapped her arm around me next to Nelson, she was 14 at the time. She was pregnant. She traveled alone for the first few hundred miles. You can just imagine why a 14-year-old girl from Honduras would be fleeing. The kind of violence she went through. Not, they don't want what you have or what I have. They want safety. They want to be safe. So for them, a better life means that not a new car, 
not your job. The fourth thing I learned on this trip is that the struggle didn't end at the border. It really just began. My friends arrived uh, in Guadalajara 24 hours. It took us, two, what would normally take two hours on a car, it took us 24 hours through the backs of dump trucks and, and school buses and pickup trucks. Uh, I, I can't even name all the transportations that we took in this like 24 to 48 hour period. And when they finally got to Tijuana, you saw what was going on in the news. You saw the militarization. You saw the people kind of getting clogged up. You saw the smoke bombs and the chaos that was ensuing um, uh, there at the border. And uh, they started asking questions about how they were going to seek asylum. And really, no one knew the answer. Our government made it pretty complicated to seek asylum. So confusing that even lawyers couldn't even tell them the exact Situation because it seemed like every day it was changing. Continues that way. Today, for those who are on the border with Remain in Mexico and all the policies in place to keep asylum seekers from completely seeking asylum in the United States. And they kept asking me, hey, Gavin, when they found out I was a pastor, like, do you know Pastor Johnson? He's in Florida. He came down on a mission trip during Hurricane Mitch. He would help us, right? I didn't know the answer. And that started to haunt me. How is the church truly going to respond? How are Christians, how are people of faith going to treat the people? They had no problems serving when it suited them to fly down on mission trips and do puppet shows and look all pious and great. But if they're coming here, will the Christians act differently? It's the last, the fifth thing I learned is that the Christian response to this immigration, for the most part, scared me. When I did the caravan, I, I had no idea. I mean, I knew the con- that, that immigration was controversial. I had no idea me being on the caravan would make so many people upset. The emails I got, the Facebook messages, the posts, all of a sudden people I went to church with for years, people who were there at my baptism, people who were there supporting me, through seminary, all these things were now writing really heartbreaking things in the name of their faith. I'll tell you one story, and I've changed the name enough that you can't really kind of figure out who it is, but I'll tell you exactly what happened. A lady wrote me. She's in the Christian Chamber of Commerce. So she wasn't just a member of the chamber. It was a Christian one, right? It, if the chamber's not conservative enough enough, there's a Christian... Chamber of Commerce, right? So she's a member of that, uses her faith proudly in her politics around San Antonio. She wrote me uh, on a Facebook post. She posted and kind of tagged me in it and wrote, Gavin, if you're a pastor of such noble whatever, whatever, in the Bible does it say thou shall not steal? And I said yes. Says it a couple of times, twice in the Old Testament because the Ten Commandments is mentioned twice, at least two times, probably others. And she says, you're right. So therefore, Gavin, if somebody steals your coat, are you just supposed to give it to them? These migrants that are stealing, are we just supposed to give them all our coats? So she wrote. And then I thought she was joking. 
Because I was like, she has to know, member of the Christian Chamber of Commerce. She's a Bible-based woman. And so I Googled her question. You know what came up? Does anybody know what popped up? The very first Google response to that question, if somebody steals your coat, should you give it to them? Anybody take a guess? What do you say? Yes, but where does it come from? The, yes, Jesus was asked the same exact question verbatim. She didn't even know the question she was asking was asked to Jesus. Google knew the Bible better than she did. And so I, I wrote back just the Bible verse, and it didn't go well. I had to delete the post. And ever since then, my therapist is like, Gavin, you cannot do that anymore. I'm like, okay, okay, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. But that's when I realized our Christian faith is really biblically illiterate. We're not using the Bible correctly. We're not using our faith correctly. And not only in the topic of immigration, we've already mentioned the LGBT community, the homeless community, these groups of others that we marginalize in the name of our faith will twist around whatever words of Jesus we want. So if we say somebody steals our code, we can justify not giving it to them. And that scared me. It was the first time I was kind of speechless and didn't really know what to say back to so many of my brothers and sisters in my faith who are still using their faith to justify exclusion. But here's the last thing they taught me. And again, it goes back to the first one. They taught me compassion and empathy. You see, in scriptures in Leviticus, it, it says to treat a foreigner from a strange, a strange land, right, like you're native born. It says that in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and some other places, but it almost says it verbatim like that. To treat a stranger from a foreign land like you're native born. So a lot of times we inter interpretate that like, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, the way you want to be treated, which I always kind of felt like that's an odd thing to say, the way I want to be treated. Like, if that's the level, I may not treat somebody very great because sometimes I don't treat myself great, right? But native-born. Native in the Old Testament, that's much deeper than just friend or somebody past, you know, like just, you know. It is, means your blood relative. To treat a stranger like your blood relative well, that is a whole new interpretation of that scripture, especially if you know at the time it was written in that biblical time, to treat somebody from a different tribe or a different region like your native born, that is absolutely crazy. But that's how strong that language actually is. And it continues. It's the, one of the foundations of our faith. Because it says at the very end of one of those scriptures, the reason we treat a stranger in a foreign land like our native-born is because you are all strangers from a foreign land out of Egypt. All of us are in this together. They had every reason on that 18-wheeler to talk to me for a little bit, and then at the end they're like, hey, we got to go, Gavin. Nice to meet you. See you later. But every time we changed transportation, we changed the truck, they would scream my name, Gavino, 
Gabino, here, come here. Because they didn't want me to be lost. And they kept me safe the entire journey. When they had every reason to say, nice to meet you. Every time I needed water or food, they'd make sure I had some. Even if I said no, they would make me eat. Because what they had was everyone around them. Their identity of family was not just my family, just what I need. It was to be shared. And that's how they survived. You know, there's a lot of things that are wrong right now. There's a lot of things that we can do and we don't even know if we're doing it right. We could go down and serve the new shelters that are being built on the Mexico side of things. We can go and company people. We can try to find organizations to support. We can supply them with supplies that we, all we need. And I hope that we can do that. But the real challenge is how we live our daily lives. Do we see the people we even disagree with as our true blood relatives and treat them as such? Do we really believe that? Because if we do, instead of just looking pious and blowing our trumpets, Lent is about to start, right? I think it's around the corner. We can put all the ashes on we want, roll in sackcloth and ashes, as far as I'm concerned. Look, it's all pious. But in our text today in Isaiah, it says if you actually serve others, if you actually treat somebody like a native-born person, this is your reward. God will be your rear guard, and your light will shine forth like the dawn. It is then, it is then, we get to see our brothers and sisters and who they are, this common humanity we share in through the love of God. And if you can't figure out any of that, there's days I can't. You can at least give your coat. Amen. <laughs>